Brian Hunt. From wherever you're listening, we hope that you are challenged and encouraged by this week's message. Hey guys, again, welcome to Crossroads. If you snuck in late, my name is Pastor Brian. Grateful that you're with us here. Whether you're joining us at a living room or a coffee shop or somewhere around the country, around the world, welcome. Uh, And again, if you're at one of those watch parties, man, thanks for taking some time to have community with each other. I I bring this up because watch parties are really important. It gives you a great chance to connect with the community that's around you, connect with family and friends, but even to invite somebody to church that normally wouldn't step foot in a building, but you have a chance to have them come just to your living room and hang out. So take advantage of that, especially during this time where we could say, man, it's a really weird time. And let's look at it from the positive. This is a great chance for people to find out about Jesus that might never have out before. And you could be a part of that just by opening up your home. So thank you again for the Davises and the Swifts and, uh, and, and the Buhays and also for the Montandans that we've been all at their houses these past four services. It's been really great. But you too can host a watch party because July 9th and 12th, we're going to be beginning to re-enter our Manteca campus, but that does not mean that we're going to stop our online experience at all. In fact, it's only going to get better. It's only going to get more more interactive. And again, those watch parties are such a critical thing for you guys to be a part of. So uh, thanks again for doing that. And my hope for you is that you'll consider maybe joining us in July 9th and 12th as we get ready for the next phase of things. But uh, if you guys are at a watch party again, man, thank you for being here today. Uh, I'll give you more information about what it's going to look like. We'll have more videos coming out. But for the time being, just hang tight and be praying for us. That would be huge. We are in a really great series right now. It's called Greater. We are looking at the life of John the Baptist. And as I preach this message and preach this series, I've grown to love this guy. Like he is so cool. He was a man that was known before he was born, even into the world. And he was a cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, and he was a man the Old Testament prophets talked about before he was ever born, hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever came. And God had said that before Jesus would come onto the scene of history, that there would be someone that would come and pave the way for him. And now I've always asked myself this question, though, why would Jesus need someone to pave the way for him? I mean, think about that. I mean, why, why would he need it? Is he like a Saudi prince, like from Aladdin that needs all these people that are going to come in before him to his entourage of people? I mean, he was Jesus for crying out loud. He was God. So why not like shoot like colored rainbows out of a mountain or something or, or get a bunch of wild raccoons to sing how great is our God in perfect harmony. There's so many different ways that he could have done it. Well, the reason I believe that he, that he came into this world that way was that John had to come into a world that was very jaded and very religious. See, the people that wanted to know God, what they had to do is they had to go, they were kind of going through the motions of whatever the religious people told them that they had to do. So if they wanted to know who God was and the religious people said, hey, God wants you to jump, the first thing they would have to ask is, well, how much is that going to cost? The second would be, how high do I have to jump? And the third would be, how long do I have to jump for? was all about just whatever the religious leaders said, that's what they had to do instead of listening to God about what he actually said. But then there's the other group of people that were just kind of, they didn't really care about God at all. They were doing their own thing. They were living the life that they wanted to, didn't care about what anybody thought. They were just, life was all about them. I know we can't relate to that in our world right now, but just imagine what that world could potentially look like. None of it was good. None of the hyper-religious and the hyper-unreligious, none of that was good. But it really should come as no surprise to us because those were, they were drinking from the poison waters, these murky and to- toxic waters of sin. 
And all of us have drank from that. All of us have drank from the stream of sin and we are all infected even to this day. So although God could definitely have brought Jesus into the world with a bang of justice and just made everything right and wiped everybody out, he would have been totally justified to do that. He didn't. He chose to be gracious, chose to be patient instead. He wove into the fabric of history years before it ever came to be an on-ramp of grace. An on-ramp of grace. And, And the reason is that he wanted to wake the world up to remind them that the God of the universe still loved them. Despite all the stuff that they were doing, he still loved them. And the on-ramp of grace came in the form of the message from John the Baptist. John was the one that was calling out from the wilderness to wake up. And so week one, we we ended up starting looking at, God had a plan for John's life before he was ever born. And we said that that's true for us too, that God has a purpose for us, that we were made on purpose for a purpose. Then week two, we actually looked at John worshiped Jesus before he was ever born. In fact, Pastor Ed talked about how that, that John leapt inside his mother's womb, like a little, little Chris Tomlin concert hanging out in there, like he's just jamming out, right? It was all about that going on. And then in week three for Father's Day, we saw that, that John's ministry centered around this, this one word that was very powerful and it had a lot of deep meaning to it. It was the word repentance. John was calling on people not only just to wake up to God, but to repent, to, to turn away from those sins that they were, they were going through. And guys, he was an amazing guy. He was a guy that dressed in camel hair. He ate locusts and honey. And he was willing to call out anyone to repent of their sins, including the governor, Herod, for some things that he was doing, who even he had the power to kill him, but yet he still called him out. But John's mission from God was to call all people to repentance, the common and the royal. And and we said that repentance is actually not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of us kind of shiver at it, but it wasn't a bad thing. What repentance is, is a realization that our life is in need of maintenance, that there is a disconnect between the way that we're living and the way that God wants us to live. And we say, you know what? I, I want something different. God, I need what you need. I want what you, I want what you offer me today. And that brings us to today. Today, week four of greater in the part of John's life that we enter into today is actually what endears John to me the most. Because as I was thinking about it, I'd like to see myself as a guy that could wear camel hair and uh, eat locusts and honey and live in the wilderness. But I'm not a big camper. So like, I don't know if that's going to be something I could do. Okay. I'd like to see myself as a guy that would be willing to call out anyone, including a, you know, including a, a, a governor, knowing that whatever I called him out to, that he was doing would possibly kill me. I'd love to think I would do that, but I really like my kids. And I think that I would probably want to see them a little bit more. So I don't know if I could do that. I'd love to say that my life was marked by worship. Even when I was inside my mother's belly, But guys, I know me, and I also know the stuff that I've done in my life, and it's not all worshipful. So so all of those things are things that I wish I had in my life, like things I really want in my life. But frankly, I have a better chance of being the starting quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals than those actually happening. The Raiders I have a chance for, but the Bengals, (laughs) there's no chance at all that that's ever going to happen, okay? But now this week, this week, oh, now this part of John's life, well, I can tell you what, I relate to this. This week in John's life, we're one and the same. We are lockstep together in this one. And I think you'll understand why in just a few moments. If you have your Bibles with you, this is a good chance to look at Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to be at. Matthew chapter 11 in your Bibles, maybe your Crossroads apps, you can do that. Chat host, you can put a link to the Bible right there for me if you would. 
Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to find out a little bit more about why John's life should have been endearing to all of us as we dive into Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So here's what we need to remember. We forget that John and Jesus' story are intertwined, that they're, they're one and the same. John is paving the way for Jesus, but we should also know that Jesus isn't waving, waiting for all this paving to be done before he starts ministry. It's not like out here in California where they shut down all the roads and you have this one sliver to go and it looks perfectly done, but you have to wait until they do it. Not like that at all. Okay, here's the deal. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. We, we read about that last week. But historically, it's said that once Jesus was baptized, his ministry, his public ministry began. So what this means is that by now he has 12 disciples. When we pick up in Matthew 11, 1, he's got 12 disciples. They all have been onboarded. Their W-2s have been processed. OSHA training is done. New employee orientations is all done. They're doing ministry, but they're on the way. But Matthew makes sure to point out that Jesus is doing all this in Galilee, He's preaching and teaching in Galilee. So you'll see why this is important in a second. But I do want to push pause just for a moment here and point something out, especially if you're not familiar with God or the Bible and you're just joining us here today. Man, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for trusting us and being willing just to listen a little bit. Because when we read this book, um, this Matthew, we, we, we should kind of know that this is, is, is known as the, the book of Matthew, but it's also known as the gospel of Matthew. And there are four books in the Bible that have that gospel attached to them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them are known as the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark. You you can see where I'm going. The reason is, is that all of those books, uh, they actually talk about the life of Jesus, either through someone's uh, personal perspective or through eyewitnesses that they've either interviewed or talked about. Mark and Luke are examples of gospel that were written from eyewitness point of view. But you would be wrong to think that these four books come as a package deal because they weren't written at the same time and they definitely weren't written to the same audiences. So I'll explain a little bit more. Mark, the Gospel of Mark was written in 50 AD and it was written to a Roman audience. The Gospel of Luke was written in 60 AD to a man by the name of Theophilus, who was a government official that had asked Luke to investigate this claims of Christianity. So he's trying to find out about it. Then the Gospel of John was written between 80 and 90 AD, and it was the oldest of all the Gospels, but is actually written to kind of cross over bridges. So it was to a, a Jewish audience and a Roman and a Gentile audience, and John was speaking to all of those. But Matthew, Matthew was written in between 50 and 70 AD, and its audience was a Jewish audience, so to religious people. So the fact that Matthew takes time and he knows that speaking to a Jewish audience and that they might be understanding it, he takes time to tell them where Jesus is and where John is at. Because he knows those people that are hearing it, that would have meant something to them. It would have connected his audiences a little bit better. That's why, guys, I use goofy things. Like I use sports and science and philosophy and bodily functions and cartoons or whatever it takes to be able to connect with the the subject that we're talking about. So here, what Matthew says in Matthew 1, he's basically saying, um, hey, just so you know, uh, Jesus was in Galilee doing ministry. You should really know that. Keep an eye on that. We're going to come to that in a second. But just so you know, that's where he's at. But also don't forget about this. Because he says in Matthew uh, Matthew 11, 2, he says this. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples to ask him. 
So let's remember and push pause there for a second that we need to remember that John was in jail and not just like easy jail, but we're talking varsity level jail, no honey buns, no smokes to trade for ramen noodles. Like we're talking jail. Okay. He was in a fortress of Herod's um, in Maccabeus is where he was located. He was big time jail, but somehow we read here, his disciples were able to interact with him somehow. And what happened there is that they start telling him about all that Jesus is doing in Galilee. They start giving him the highlight reel of everything that's happening in Galilee, all these good things. And so John is looking at where he's at right now in a, in a prison. He's starting to hear about what, <laughs> about what Jesus is doing in Galilee. And he says, okay, um, I need to ask Jesus something. And so he sends his disciples on, on a mission to be able to ask Jesus a question. Now, here's something you might not have thought about. Check this out. In order for John to get that question to Jesus, here's what would have had to happen. They would have had to somehow leave Herod's fortress in, in, in Macarius, travel north through Persia along the Jordan River, cross over into Galilee, and then somehow find out where Jesus was at. Guys, that was a trip of over 100 miles one way on foot. 100 miles on foot one way. So you probably are asking yourself, what question is so important that John would send these mission, these guys on a mission that possibly could take their lives? What was the question they had to ask Jesus? It's this question. Matthew 11 verse three says this, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? That's what John had to ask Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John wanted to know, hey, hey Jesus, are, are you the one? Like, are you really the one? Are you really the one that is supposed to be the savior of the world? Are, are you the one that I gave my life up for and am now paving the way for? Are you the one that's going to come and make everything right? Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? And it would seem that John the Baptist, the way maker, is doubting. But how is that possible? How, how is the, the bold, gnarly prophet that sleeps in the wilderness and eats locusts and honey and sleeps in camel hair and doesn't care who cared what they thought about him? How does, how, that doesn't seem right for that guy because aren't super faithful people like him supposed to be like strong no matter what? And historically, we've kind of scratched our heads at this. If, if you are a, a believer in Jesus and you're familiar with your Bible, you kind of say, well, okay, hang on. That jars my faith just a little bit. That messes with my Christian bubble that I, that I breathe in, rainbows and unicorns and puppies all the time where life is fine. Like all of a sudden, I don't like that. It doesn't make sense because we think of John as doubt proof. No way John could doubt. And, and I'll get to that in just a second. But, but something kind of struck me as I read this text. I've read it hundreds of different times, and maybe you have too. But there's something that I hadn't considered here that, that maybe you haven't either. And it's this. What if the question John was asking wasn't really for John? Like, like what if he was asking, what, maybe what he wasn't as concerned about the situation that he was in that, that, that we see on face value? What if that wasn't it? Because what if John was asking, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? What if he was asking that for his disciples, not for him? What about that? See, see John's disciples were faithful. They were faithful men. I mean, they were by him in a fortress while he was being arrested. He was there. So, so, so what if these men that were very faithful, they... 
They look at this faithful man and, 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 and that has done so much good, that was paving the way for the Messiah to come. And then they look at where he's at and they begin to doubt. They start to say, well, hold on. Isn't good things supposed to happen to good people? And John is really good people and there's nothing but bad that's happening to him. So, so maybe this Jesus guy isn't really the one. So, so, so what if John's faith was good, but theirs was slipping? And by John sending them to Jesus to ask him the question, maybe it was to re-energize their belief in the mission that they were on. Or maybe it was both. Maybe John needed it and Jesus needed it and, 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 and John needed it and his disciples needed it and maybe we needed it. The bottom line is this, is that the question was given to Jesus by men that traveled 100 miles one way to ask him. And this is Jesus' response. Look in verse 4. Verse four says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. A 100 mile journey with a 14 word question and a 40 word answer. Can you understand why we text and email now? Can we get that at least, right? And on face value, you might think that, man, you know, Jesus, you're kind of a little, a little short with these guys, aren't you there, man? You're not really caring. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, uh, hey, which seriously, I'm really busy. Can you just tell John, everything's fine. I'm healing people. Ministry's happening. Stop your belly aching, John, as my mom would say. That seems like what he would say. But guys, if you're thinking that way, you're missing something because there is so much more here than just that. So much more. Because what Jesus just listed off there, all those things that he was doing, he was reminding John about what the prophet Isaiah had said hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Guys, just listen to this for a second. Think about this. Jesus says that the blind will receive sight. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Jesus says the lame walk. Isaiah 35, 6. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus says those with leprosy are cleansed. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Jesus says the deaf will hear. Isaiah 35, 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus says the dead are raised. Isaiah 26, 19, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Jesus says the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Isaiah 61, 1 says the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Guys, all of that, he tells John all of that, everything to do this, to tell him that I am the one. I am the one. There is no need to wait for someone else because I am here. He's speaking life into John and his followers that he is, in fact, the Messiah that they had paved the way for. And here is all the proof that you'll need, all the scripture that you'll need. Everything you need is right there for you to believe. But he's also saying something else. 
He's saying, I'm not coming for you, John. I'm not going to save you, is what he's telling John. One of my favorite books of all time is The Barbarian Way by Erwin McManus. And in this book, he describes the scene from John, and I just love his words. Um, Pastor Irwin says, What Jesus was saying to John has been far too barbaric for us to keep in the mainstream of the Christian faith. Jesus was saying to him, John, I'm not coming through for you. I'm not getting you out of prison. I'm not sparing your life. Yes, I have done all this and more for others, but the path I choose for you is different from theirs. You'll be blessed, John, if this does not cause you to fall away. That is um, it's powerful. That's powerful. And it's so true of what we feel, isn't it? Let, let's take this, this, this situation from the first century. Let's bring it to the 21st century. The question is, what do you do with doubt when it comes to God? What do you do? What do you do when God says no? What do you do when you're fired unjustly? What do you do when you're passed over for the promotion because of the color of your skin yet again? What do you do when your son chooses drugs and alcohol and running instead of your family and God's not answering that prayer? What, what happens to your faith when God says no? I... Uh, I wear the shirt today for a very important reason. Um, and, and the reason is, is that it reminds me, it's actually in honor of a young girl by the name of Jordan. And, and Jordan is at 19, and she is a college girl. She's uh, got a great family. Her mom, Donna, is part of our Celebrate Recovery team. Donna, love you, and Jordan. And um, she's got two great sisters, and, and uh, she's just, just a ball of energy, just loved Jordan so much. And uh, one day, Jordan, about a month or so ago, went to the doctor to have a strep throat test done. And when she went to the doctor, uh, the test came back, and they said that she doesn't have strep throat. She has leukemia. She has acute myeloid leukemia. And they took her from that hospital instantly to the University of California, San Francisco. And for the past month, she's there fighting for her life. She now has a great set of hair, just like me. She wears it much better, but she's fighting for her life. And so I've been contacting with her and touching base with her and her family and seeing how she's doing. And, but recently, as I was getting ready for this message, I just said, hey, hey Jordan, how, how are you and God through this? How's your faith? And, and she texted me something that she gave me permission to share, but let me just share it with you. Jordan says, it's definitely brought me a lot closer to God. I think before all this happened, I was getting back to it. But for a long time, my faith definitely wasn't where it should have been. This has kind of been a reset button and really opened my eyes to what I was missing. Throughout this last month, there's been so many things coming up from my diagnosis that are considered rare or odd. Doctors said the fact that my white blood cell count got as high as it did before I was diagnosed and I didn't have a stroke was amazing. And all I've been able to think through it all is that it's not rare. It's not odd. It's not amazing. It's God. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but every little thing I see, I just see him, even if it's something that sets me back or keeps me here longer, it's all part of the plan. 
19, fighting for her life, still able to see God's plan through it all. And, and I want you to hear something from me today more than anything else. I hope this phrase actually sticks to the bones of your soul. And it's this idea that in our darkest challenge, our faith can shine the brightest. In our darkest challenge, our faith can shine the brightest. And, and let me explain more about this, especially as we look at Jesus's words to the crowd of people that were around him. As John's followers leave with this message of all that Jesus has done, but him saying, don't fall away, John. As he does that, he, he speaks to the crowd. And I want you to look in verse 7 with me in Matthew 11. Uh, he says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. See, we have to remember something. John the Baptist is a big deal. Big deal. I mean, he was, he was a rock star, okay? The, the crowd around Jesus would have known who JTB was. Like they knew him. They knew the story down by the river. They knew what he said to Herod. They knew that he was in jail. They knew it all because John was a big deal. And they would have heard what Jesus said to John's disciples. And they would have been like, what? That's big news. So knowing this, he turns to the crowd and he asks them, what was your motivation to go out and see John? What was your motivation? And <laughs> I love Jesus for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons is he's a little snarky and sarcastic at times. And I love that because he basically says, wait, did you go out there to like see the scenery by the Jordan? Did he say, did you go out there to get some fashion tips from a man that looks like a Yeti? Was that the reason that you went out there? Of course not. There are much prettier scenes than the banks of the Jordan River. I've seen them. It ain't all that special. He, there are much more fashionable people that they could have looked at, like in the palaces at that time. So they weren't coming down for that. So, so what was it? What was the reason they went out to see John? Jesus says, you came to see a prophet. But for us, we forget that they hadn't seen a prophet for 400 years. Hadn't seen a prophet in 400 years. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Those were guys that talked about Jesus before he got here. He was the last of them, and they had not seen one of those for 400 years. So this is big news that John's on the scene. Because Jesus just said, he's like, hey, he was more than a prophet. It wasn't some circus sideshow side that had come to town. No, no, he was, he was there for a very specific role that all the prophets of old had talked about. He was there to pave the way for the Messiah. That's why, Jesus, that's why John was here. John was making a way for people to reconnect with God and see the Savior of the world in Jesus. But that's a daunting task. That's a daunting task for him. That would require John to go head first into the pit of people's hearts, into the murky waters of sin, to all of the, to the root of all the stuff that is killing people and speak directly to that. That it, he was there to unclog all that so that the Savior could save them. And this is why Jesus says these words to the crowd right after. Look in verse 11. 
says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This, this is where our whole series comes from. The whole series comes from John says that John or Jesus says that John, the bulldozer, the way maker, the caller of repentance, that he is greater than anyone, anyone that's been born. But here's the key. When did Jesus call him that? When? After he doubted. After, not before. It was after he doubted that Jesus says he is the greatest of all time. He is greater than anyone. John the Baptist, yes, but John the the doubter, John the one that was struggling with it all, John the one that was facing certain death, that John, Jesus says that there are none greater than he. (laughs) And to that, my soul says, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Because if doubters still get in, then maybe I have a chance to with my doubt. I I think that people need to embrace this with their life and with their faith. Doubt, listen to me, doubt is not what kills you. Sin kills you. Satan kills you. A life apart from Jesus, that's what kills you. But if we can keep our footing with Jesus in the middle of our doubt, then this will make the biggest impact in our lives and it will also make the biggest impact on those that are around us. That even in my doubt, Jesus still loves me. I mean, if he can still love someone that publicly called him out as maybe not the savior of the world, then maybe he can still love me when I'm nervous about trusting him with my finances. Or maybe he could still love me when I'm angry when the cancer doesn't get healed. Maybe he could still love me when I'm scared about what tomorrow may bring. Listen, Jesus looks beyond the surface of our doubt to the very depths of our devotion. That's what he looks at. And as believers in Jesus, man, we need to hear the gentleness of our Savior remind us of that. Just like he did to John, Jesus is reminding us that when we are frustrated that he's not showing up on our time, that his timing is perfect. That we need to remember that when we're angry from what our friends said to us or on Facebook or to our face or behind our back, he reminds us that he'll never hurt us. That we need to be reminded that when we're scared of what tomorrow might bring, that he says, hey, I'm already there. Just trust me. Trust me. It's this kind of deep devotion and commitment that will propel us through this life. I believe that John's greatest ministry moment might have been in that jail cell with all of his followers' eyes fixed on him as he heard that news from Jesus for the first time, that he wasn't coming. That how he responded said more about him and Jesus than anything he had done up until that point, that moment. But also don't miss out on what Jesus says right after these glowing comments to John. I'll read it again. He says, he says, yet... Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. (laughs) He said that as great as John is, as amazing as he is, the lowest person that snuck into heaven by the skin of their teeth is greater than John the Baptist. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus in our life. That the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest in this life. 
unbelievable. This is the reward of our faith lived out for Jesus, despite that what our doubt says, that when we stay rooted in who he is, in whatever plan he might come to us, he says that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, the greatest this world has ever seen. So don't let the stuff of this world snuff out the future that awaits you. This life is a pit stop, my friends. It's like an 80-year-old rest stop before the final destination of our eternity. So would you please hold life loosely? Enjoy life, yes. Work hard, yes. The hills and valleys are going to be there, yes. But listen, do not let this life define you. Let Jesus define you. Remember what he has done and what he has promised that he will do. Press beyond your doubt. Press beyond your doubt and into your faith because on the other side of that, on the other side of that doubt is your greatest victory. Our darkest challenges, in our darkest challenges, our faith can shine the brightest. That is what Jesus wanted John to hear. I believe that's what Jesus wants us to hear today too. But here's the deal. The question that John asked Jesus is actually very fair. And it is a very important question to ask. John said, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? It's a very important question to ask. And here's why. If Jesus is not the one, it is madness to follow him. There is no point. Why would we follow a false savior? We should be waiting for the real one. Like if there is another, then we should be following the other. That's what should happen. If that's true, but if Jesus is the one, then we must follow. If Jesus was perfect and he died for our sins, we must follow. If Jesus defeated death and he was resurrected, then we must follow. If Jesus is the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament scripture, then we must follow. If he says that we are saved by grace and grace alone, we must follow. If he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one gets to the Father except through him, then we must follow. And when we decide that he is the one, when we decide that there is no other, then there is only one decision that we must make. It is to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Give your life over to him and then be baptized. Because the invitation to the water of repentance that John was baptizing people in is still available to you. And the baptism of forgiveness that Jesus gives us is available to you. The question is whether We will be hard-headed and hard-hearted and ignore the message, or we will receive what Jesus is giving us today. That despite our doubt, that our faith in him can overcome all of that, and we can follow him. But as we start to prepare our hearts for communion, there's one last thing I wanted us to consider, especially around this idea of baptism. Um, John sent his men on a hundred-mile journey to go, visit Jesus with one question. But I want to bring us back to this uh, baptism of Jesus. Again, we talked about it last week, but uh, John was, um, he was baptizing in the Jordan River and all of a sudden this guy starts starts coming down the side of the, into the banks and he recognizes his cousin Jesus and, and, and John says, man, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me. So Jesus gets into the water, John baptizes his own cousin. And then one of the most epic scenes in all of scripture takes place. 
says that the heavens part. God speaks down from heaven, says, that's my son and who I'm well pleased. A dove descends and lands on his shoulder in the form of the, for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is there. It is epic. So if you want to know where I'm going to be at in heaven, I will be by the replay booth of that moment over and over and over. It is amazing. But here's something that we take for granted. How did Jesus get there? Like, how did he get there? And what we find out is that Jesus was actually in Nazareth to begin with. So in order to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it was a trip of 70 miles one way. Jesus made the effort, 70-mile effort, to get to that spot at that time to be baptized by John. Why? Because he needed to get baptized? No, no, no. Because we needed an example. We need an example to see what it looked like to have an outward expression of our faith in Jesus. But I believe he also did it to ask this question. How far are you willing to travel to meet Jesus? How how far are you willing to travel to get baptized? See, my friends, I will tell you this, that today at one o'clock at our Manteca campus, you have the chance to be able to get baptized that you can make a public declaration of your faith today. Over 25 people have already pre-registered to be able to be there. I'm telling you right now, I want you to meet me there. Meet me there, one o'clock. We got all the COVID approved, everything you can imagine there, okay? It's gonna be fantastic, but I want you to take your step with Jesus to get baptized. Now, if you're joining us somewhere where you can't physically get to the campus, tell your chat host, we will find a way to be able to make that happen. But if you are within the distance, my question is, how far are you willing to travel to get baptized by Jesus? And I pray that there would be nothing that holds you back from that, that you would meet me at one o'clock to get baptized, to step across the line of faith and say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. Despite my doubt, I believe in you. And so that's what I want you to consider as we get ready for communion. We remember who Jesus is. As we pray, just remember that in your greatest challenge is a time for your, in your darkest challenge is a time for your faith to shine the brightest. Step across that line. Accept Jesus. Let him be your light in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and I love your word. Thank you for the life of John the Baptist that at some points we're like, I don't know if I can relate to that, but today we can relate to it. We all have had doubts, me included. So God, I just ask that we would press into the truth of his life, but more importantly, the truth of you, Jesus, that you came, you died, you resurrected, you ascended, you did all of that for us so that we can know a life, an eternal life with you forever. And it's through your grace that you give us, nothing that we could ever do ourselves, but only through your grace that we are made whole and right with you, Jesus, and that we can have an eternity with you. So God, I pray right now that if there's anyone on the other side of this lens right now, whether they're watching me live or on replay later, God, that they would hear this and that right now they would say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. My life is empty and I am lost. But today I realize, Jesus, that you are what I've been missing. That despite my doubt and all my questions, I realize that you still love me, you accept me. And so Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I repent of the sin of my past. I embrace the future that you give me and I want you in my life forever. Be my savior, Jesus. God, you tell us if anyone does that, that they are new, that their sins are forgiven, that they're a new creation in you and now they can follow you fully in their life and they could take that step to be baptized. It's what you would want them to do. Jesus did it as an example. Why would we not do it 
to publicly declare what we believe in him. So God, I pray that this would happen to many. As we take this communion, God, I pray that we would remember your broken body and your shed blood, but we would remember what it represents, and that is love and grace and forgiveness. So thank you, Jesus. You're so, so good. We love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've discovered Jesus and this ministry has helped you follow him fully, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give through our Crossroads app or at crossroadsgrace.org give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Now go and follow him fully.